You are listening to a message from Redemption Community Church, a life-giving church in Westchester County, New York. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or follow our messages online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the message. So today we're starting this new teaching series called Counterculture, and we're going to be teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I want to start with this idea. I want to put this idea uh, out there up front, and here it is. Culture is contagious. Come on, how many of you know that? Culture is contagious. Like it or not, we're social animals, and so the people that we spend time with and the places where we live have influence on us. Certainly the, the, the family of origin, right, that you came up in influences you and shapes who you are, but we're also influenced by our friends, by our coworkers, by our neighbors, by our church family. I believe if you put roots down in a church long enough, the culture of that church will begin to influence you. Certainly we're influenced by the places where we live. Many of you know, most of you know that um, I'm not originally from New York. I actually grew up in the great city of New Orleans, and we have a very distinct culture down there. But I've been living in New York for many years now, long enough that sometimes I realize I'm beginning to think and act like a New Yorker. And I notice it, you know, when I go other places, you know, I'll be in some other city and I'm at a red light in traffic and it turns green and the person in front of me doesn't step on it. I'm like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's get this thing moving. What are you waiting on? I'm like, oh my God, I'm turning into a New Yorker, right? Or if I'm, a down, I'm in downtown somewhere and there's not like crowds of people, I'm like, where is everybody? It's like after New York, right? Like everywhere seems empty when you go other places. It seems so quiet. Or how about this one? Come on, this is the sure sign that you're a New Yorker. When you go somewhere else and strangers are friendly to you, you're like, oh my gosh, where are you from? What happened to you, right? Now, I'm from the South, guys. Like, I should, like, be used to this, right? But now, I've been here long enough. Like, seriously, I I notice it. I notice it. A couple years ago, I was in Alabama for a pastor's conference, and I was waiting outside the hotel because it was pouring down, raining, and there was a worker. I think the desk worker was outside. She was taking a smoke break, and some dude walked up to her, and he goes, hi, how you doing? Are you a Christian? And I was like, oh my gosh, that would never happen in New York, right? Can you imagine somebody walking up to a stranger and asking them, are you a Christian? They'd be like, I'll show you what kind of Christian I am. Get out of my face. <laughs> the culture is contagious, right? And I realized, like, man, I'm becoming a New Yorker. And in this series, we're going to be studying the book of of 1 Corinthians, which, which was actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to these Christians living in this ancient Greek city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was actually a lot like New York City. It was a very prosperous port city. It was a, a, an international, like multicultural, cosmopolitan hub of, of culture and commerce and intellect, but also a hub of immorality and idolatry. I mean, guys, Corinth was so notoriously like famous for immorality that there was actually a Greek verb that, that literally like to Corinthianize, it, it meant sexual immorality. Like, can you imagine? Like, that's how you know your city is bad. When you have curse words named after your city, it's bad. <laughs> and so this, this is Corinth. And one of the main problems that the Corinthian Christians were, were dealing with is that they had gotten infected by the culture around them. And it started showing up in problems that they were having inside of the church. So you could tell the culture had infected them. And and so there were a lot of problems inside the church as a direct result because culture is 
contagious. Come on, we're either catching the culture of this fallen world or we're catching the culture of the kingdom of God. We're either influencing this culture or we're being influenced by it. And so the question is, how do we relate to culture? How do we relate to culture as Christians? Like, what do we accept? What do we push back on? I think that's like the million-dollar question. And as I think about that question, I think about many of the traditional approaches to culture that I've seen, attitudes toward culture that I've seen, like, growing up in church my whole life. There are some people who would say, we got to fight the culture wars. Come on, we got to gang up. we got to vote together. We're going to get prayer back in schools. we got to take this country back. And that sounds really good, but it can lead you to getting really angry and losing your focus on the gospel. And next thing you know, you're like storming the Capitol or something crazy like that. (laughs) Oh, we're going to keep it real today, church. (laughs) Then there's other people who are just like the relevance people. No, we got to be relevant. We got to relate to culture. We got to speak the language of the culture. We got to be like the culture. And then people will accept our message. But the problem is you can go so far down that path that the gospel is not even recognizable. And there's nothing distinct about you. And Jesus said you're called to be in this world, but not of this world. And then there's like a third group of Christians. I would call this the escapist approach. These are the people who are like, look, the worse the world gets, the better it gets for us. It's a sign that Jesus is coming back. We're getting out of here anyway. So come on, everybody come to church. Let's lock the doors and let's all sing. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Come on. Some of y'all came up in churches like that, right? Like we're getting out of here. Jesus is coming back. Yes. (laughs) Everybody wants Jesus to come back unless it's their wedding night or something like that. I'm just saying. Make sure y'all are paying attention today. So there are all these different approaches to to culture, right? How do we relate to culture? But here's the idea. Jesus doesn't call us to simply oppose the culture or to blindly assimilate to the culture, but rather to be a loving counterculture in the midst of it. Come on, a people who can transform the culture around us because we've been transformed by the gospel. That's what we're after. And that's what 1 Corinthians is really all about. Paul is writing to this group of Christians living in this pagan, idolatrous, like, you know, immoral culture, and they've been influenced by it. They've been infected by it, and, and they're struggling with how, how, to live, how to live in the midst of it. How many of you know that times don't change that much, and history repeats itself? And I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like, these words are life for us, and they're relevant for us. And so we're going to dive into the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So let me give you a little background here. The apostle Paul was writing to a church that he knew well, a church he loved. In fact, he had planted this church. Uh, He was writing as a spiritual father. You can read the background to 1 Corinthians in Acts chapter 18. I would encourage you to do that. The apostle Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth preaching the gospel, uh, discipling people, and like starting this church. And then later on, another leader named Apollos came along and carried on the work. And so here's the reality. Things had not gone very well since Paul left because he begins to get word that, that, that there's some divisions in the church, there's some, there's some immorality, like there's some really bad things happening. So Paul writes this letter to address these problems, okay? Little heads up here. This is not one of the feel-good New Testament books. Like this is the Apostle Paul, like lovingly putting the smack down, like setting some things straight, okay? Correcting, correcting. And so we need to submit to that as we go through this series. Allow the scriptures to, to correct us where we need correction. So Paul's addressing some serious problems in in the church, things like disunity, sexual immorality, abuse of Christian freedom and spiritual gifts, wrong doctrine, wrong beliefs about things like the resurrection. And many of these are issues that we're still facing today. 
as modern day Christians living in this culture, these are issues that we're still facing today. So we're gonna go on a journey together over the next few weeks through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I wanna invite you to get the most out of this series, okay? One of the ways you can do that is to read with us. I wanna invite you to read along. Maybe you've never read a whole book of the Bible before. Start by reading 1 Corinthians with us, okay? So every week we'll be kind of going into it. We'll give you some chapters to, to, to read. Do that, read along with us. Some of you parents, your kids have summer reading. Now you have your summer reading assignment, okay? The other thing I would encourage you to do, I know a lot of us are going to be traveling and getting in some vacation time, is stay connected to the podcast, watch the messages on YouTube. Come on, let's kind of have a sense that we're doing this together as a church family. And then one other idea would be to um, consider doing a reading plan. If you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, if you don't have that, I would encourage you to get that, the YouVersion Bible app. There are a lot of reading plans you can do, and you can just search and find one for 1 Corinthians. Maybe you want to dig a little bit deeper in between the weeks uh, that'll be a great idea for you, okay? So let's, let's all commit to this. Let's all be reading together. Let's have this sense that we're in it together. And so this week, I would encourage you to read the rest of chapter one and then read chapter two so you come back next Sunday prepared because we're gonna dive into chapter two. Are you with me? Everybody good? Let's do this together. Come on, yeah. We're in this together. We're, we're gonna get some vacations in, but we're not taking a vacation from our spiritual growth. Amen, somebody? So today we're gonna dive into chapter one and we're gonna look at the first issue that Paul discusses him and talk about an issue that's relevant to us today. He talks about disunity in the church. And here's the question we're gonna tackle. Is unity within the church actually possible? Is unity within the church in these divisive times that we're living in right now, in the midst of a nation that's politically divided, right? Like in a diverse church like this with people from all different ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, people here from different cities, different nations, like is unity even possible in the church? And honestly, some Christians, some people would say no. You say, Pastor Jeremy, that sounds awful. Who would say that? Well, I don't think anybody would verbally say no, but many people say no by voting with their feet, by looking for a church where people think like them, look like them, vote like them. That's what a lot of people do. And it's actually, it's not a vote for unity. It's like, I want to be in a place where everybody is, is like me. In fact, Pastor Tim Keller from New York City, he, he talks about two categories of problems. He talks about living church problems and dying church problems. And he says in living church problems, you have a church that's reaching people from all different backgrounds and walks of life and different church traditions and unchurched people. So the church is like this really great mix of all these different people, but there's a lot of different opinions. There's a lot of different perspectives. Everybody doesn't agree on everything. It gets a little messy every now and then because you're reaching a lot of different people. That's living church problems. He said, but then there are also dying church problems. And here's what it looks like. Everybody looks alike. Everybody votes alike. Everybody's in the same socioeconomic bracket. And the problem with that is that is not a church. That is a Christian social club. Give me living church problems any day. Come on, I'm thankful we have a diverse church with people from all different backgrounds. We're like Baskin Robbins. We got 31 flavors up in here. We got all kinds of problems. We got all kinds of disagreements. But you know what? We're learning to love each other. Give me living church problems any day. But here's the reality. In the midst of that, we have to be honest that there are some significant issues that could potentially divide us. There are some significant issues, right? Racial issues, political issues, theological issues. We, we come from a lot of different church traditions and different denominations. And the Corinthians were also facing many issues that could potentially divide them. And so Paul takes this issue head on. Are you ready? Let's dive into it. We're gonna go to verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter one, 
verse 10, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's where the, the power of unity is. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Okay, so what were some of the issues dividing them? Well, there were some theological and doctrinal issues. Remember, this is a church that's very cosmopolitan. So there were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were Greeks. And one of the questions was, how much of the Old Testament laws do we still have to observe for today? There were disagreements about that. There were ethical questions like, what are Christians free to do and what are Christians, Christians not free to do? One of the issues we'll see later on in 1 Corinthians is they had a question like, can we eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? Okay, Ethical questions. Some of the issues were just plain old personality issues like we have in church these days. In fact, we're going to look at verse 11, which is a good illustration of this. Look at this. Look at what Paul writes. He says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, Chloe was a woman who was part of the church, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, Cephas, which is another name for the apostle Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. So Paul tells us that one of the problems that was developing in the Corinthian church is that there were these different factions. People were being divided around which Christian leaders they followed, which leaders they followed in the church. And some people would say, well, I'm on team Paul. Now, Paul was a very good theologian, right? He wrote most of the New Testament. You can see that to this day as you read his writing. He was a great theologian. And maybe there were some people in the church who were attracted to that. Now, Paul was not known for his great preaching. In fact, Paul said that. I'm not a great orator. There's actually a story about a time that Paul was preaching and someone fell asleep and fell out of a window and died. Come on, how many of you know that's bad? On my worst days preaching, nobody's ever died during the church service. <laughs> so Paul was a great theologian. Maybe there were some people who really liked theology and they were trying to memorize his writings. They were on team Paul. But then there were some people who were like, no, no, Paul's kind of boring in his preaching. I'm on team Apollos. Apollos was the guy who came after Paul, the leader who helped grow the church. And Apollos was known for being a great orator. And so some people might say, oh, no, Paul puts me to sleep. But when, but when Apollos preaches, I come alive. I'm on team Apollos. Then there was another group who said, no, I'm on team Peter. Now, my hunch is this was probably the Jewish believers in the church. They were like, hello, Peter's from our tribe. Come on, when he teaches and preaches, I get where he's coming from because he's one of our people. And then there was another category of people who said, we're on team Christ. Now that sounds really good, but commentators tell us perhaps these were the most spiritually obnoxious people in the church because they were the kind of people who were like, we're right about everything because Jesus thinks just like us. Come on, how many of you know some people like that on social media? Jesus votes like me. Jesus thinks like me. Jesus pulls for the same sports teams as me. Now I do want you guys to know that Jesus is a New Orleans Saints fan, okay? I want to set the record straight in this church. As a shepherd of this house, it is my job to steer you in the path of righteousness. Don't want anybody to be confused about that. <laughs> but seriously, right, this sounds spiritual, but there are some people who do that, right? They just baptize all of their political opinions. It's like Jesus looks and dresses and thinks exactly like me. And what it is, it's a division. Now, often there are, there are preferences in the church, right? In any local church, there are preferences. There are preferences in this church. Some of you might be like really passionate about worship, right? Where are the worshipers at? Like you wish Sunday morning was a two-hour worship con concert like every Sunday morning. Come on, you wish every week was worship night. Let's have worship. Like you would wear the worship team out 24-7. You're hardcore worshipers. That's awesome. 
Some of you are like, you know, I'm less of a worship guy, I'm more of a word guy. Some of you like really like sermons, right? Like give me sermons, preaching, like that's, that's, what, I, that's what helps me grow. Other people are really into doctrine and theology. You're like, let's expound the deep mysteries of theology that theologians have been chewing on for 2,000 years. Let's go there, because that turns me on. <laughs> Some people are like, no, that's not what's really important. What's really important is fellowship. Just give me a life group as long as I got somebody to hold my hand and tell me everything's going to be all right. If we can pray for each other, if we can encourage each other, like that's the church and that's good. And then the social justice Christians, they're like, all of y'all are wrong. It's not even about Sunday morning because real church happens when we get out of our seats and into the streets and we serve our community because you're passionate about that. And guess what? None of those things are wrong. In fact, in any good, healthy church, I think any healthy church should be trying to pursue those things. And I think here at Redemption, we're trying to pursue all of those things. There's nothing wrong with preferences. In fact, preferences might even reveal your spiritual gifting and the the passions God has placed on the inside of you. What's wrong is when those preferences are accompanied by a spirit of division. A spirit of division, a spirit that that says, I'm the most spiritual, so what I care about is the most important thing in the church, and everybody who disagrees with me is wrong because I'm on Team Jesus, and Jesus likes everything that I like. Oh, y'all got to help me preach this morning, church. Come on. Don't let the 930 service be more lively than you. This is, okay? And so this is what we're talking about, and so Paul corrects this. Paul corrects this, and he gives us three principles. There are really three corrections around embracing unity. Here's the first one. Number one, he says, if you're going to embrace unity, you have to understand unity. You have to understand unity. You have to understand what that means. Let's look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Perfectly united in mind and thought. The New Living Translation of verse 10 puts it this way. Be of one mind, read this out loud with me, united in thought and purpose. United in thought and purpose. You have to understand what unity really is. How should we be united? By every, everybody magically thinking the same way? No. That's not what the Apostle Paul says. In fact, the Apostle Paul doesn't write 1 Corinthians to settle all of the arguments he doesn't get into why certain people were affiliating with certain teams and, and, uh, and certain Christian leaders. He doesn't really get into all that. And he doesn't play the apostle card. See, if I was Paul, I would have just played the apostle card. And I'd be like, listen, I'm your spiritual father. I planted this church. All of y'all are wrong. Sit down and shut up. He doesn't do that, okay? That's not what he does. Paul is saying, I want you to be united with one mind and one purpose about the gospel. Come on, about this glorious truth that the world is in a broken condition, but God wasn't willing to leave it like that. And so because of his great love for this world, he sent his one and only son who took on flesh and blood, who walked in our shoes, who lived a sinless life on our behalf, who went to the cross for us, come on, was resurrected to conquer sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he's coming back again one day, but he set into motion his kingdom and the redemption of the world. He's like, I want you to be so enthralled with that message. I want that message to be so big for you that your differences are minimized, that they pale in comparison to the glory of the gospel. I want you to have the same conviction. I want you to have the same understanding of the importance of this gospel message and how superior it is over all these secondary issues. We need to understand unity. And maybe understanding unity 
uh, means that we understand what it's not. Because sometimes we talk about unity in the church, but what does that mean? So a couple thoughts about what it's not. Unity is not uniformity. How many of you know that unity is not uniformity where everyone thinks the same way? Everybody thinks the same way. Everybody has the same opinions and the same, same ideas. That, that, that's, not, that's uniformity. That's not what we're called to. In fact, we don't see that in 1 Corinthians. I love what one of my mentor pastors, Pastor Matt Keller says. He says, we don't have to think alike, but we have to think together. Oh, there's some married people that need to write that down. I'm just saying. We don't have to think alike, but we have to think together, right? Like we don't have to have the same ideas. We don't have to vote the same. We don't have to have the same perspectives and opinions, but we do have to think together. In church terms, come on, we have to realize that the gospel is the most important thing. The message in the work of Jesus is the most important thing. Reaching broken people, healing broken people is the most important thing. We don't have to think alike, but man, we got to think together as one family. As the body of Christ, I wish somebody would give me an amen right about now. And I think one of the biggest disappointments, you know, the past couple of years, the pandemic years, is Christians leaving their churches over secondary issues. And I'm not saying they're issues that don't matter, but they pale in comparison to the importance of the gospel. People leaving their churches over things like whether or not to wear masks. People leaving their churches over, over certain um, social and, and political issues, you know, well, well, my pastor didn't say enough, or my pastor said too much, or my pastor didn't say it exactly like I would say it if I were him, even though you don't want to have his job, right? Like things like that. And, and Christians would say we hate cancel culture, but a lot of Christians canceled their church in the past couple of years over secondary issues that are not as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. People left churches where they've been cared for and loved and pastors baptized their children and prayed for them. And I'm not up here doing therapy for myself because to be honest with you, I'm pretty proud of our church. We went through the pandemic with, with, you know, I feel like we didn't have a lot of division in our church. Now we were on lockdown. I was preaching to the camera. So maybe the ticked off people just left and I don't even know. <laughs> but the reality is it, was, it revealed something so sad in, in the church. Come on, the reality is unity is not uniformity. We should not expect everybody to think exactly like us. We just have to think together and make the most important thing the most important thing. Are you with me? Here's the other thing that unity is not. Unity is not relativism. Unity is not relativism where everybody's right about everything. We don't want to offend anybody. You just speak your truth and I'll speak my truth. And like, that's a very, like, that's a, that, that, that is, a, that is a, something reminiscent of the fallen culture that we live in. That there's no, that truth is just, you know, just a subjective thing. No, no. There are some things that we have to take a stand on. Like we have to unify around the most important things, the core teachings of Scripture that the church has believed in all times, at all places for 2,000 years. So let me give you this example. We do this thing in our church called Growth Track. If you're new to our church, I, this is an advertisement I would invite you. Every month we do two classes that really help people uh, get to know our church better and really help, helps people get connected to our church. We do two sessions. And in the first session, we take some time to talk about our beliefs and our doctrine. And what we really do is we talk about how, how does a church that's as diverse as this with people from all different church traditions and denominations, how do we stay unified and one of the quotes we give, it comes from a 17th century German theologian named Rupertus Meldinius. Doesn't that just sound like a 17th century German theologian? He said this, in the essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. Think about that for a moment. In the essentials unity, in the non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. So we have to be unified around the most essential things, the core teachings of the church, that the world is in a fallen 
condition, right? And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this planet. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross as a substitute for our sins. He was resurrected from the dead. He's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead, summon to salvation, summon to damnation. Hello, these are the core things that the church of Jesus Christ has believed for 2,000 years. We have to unify around these things. Now, if you're new to faith here today, or you're exploring faith, or you're watching online and somebody shared this with you and you're not quite sure what you believe, we love you. You're welcome here. We're not asking you to have it all sorted out, but we're talking about what we're going to preach, what we're going to teach here, right? Like the, the core things of the church, the, the word of God, and the essentials, unity, and the non-essentials, liberty. That means there are some things that do not affect your, your salvation, and we're going to give you freedom, okay? We're going to give you freedom. Should my kids go to public school or be homeschooled? I don't care. That's your choice. Should my kids you know, go trick-or-treating or should they stay home? I don't know. Non-essentials, like freedom, right? Should I be vaccinated or should I not be vaccinated? I know that's controversial. Like, we're not going to tell you what you should do. We never had a church stance on that. Personally, people ask me, like, I'm vaccinated, but I'm not going to tell you the Bible says you have to be vaccinated. You're not going to lose your salvation over that. And the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In all things, love. Whatever the discussion is, whether we agree or disagree, we come in the spirit of of love. And that's where, yeah, that, that's where we so often get it wrong. And so here's the idea. Unity is real people with different perspectives who come together because they've found a larger uniting hope around Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's not about people who all think alike. It's not about your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. It's real people with different perspectives who come together because they've found something larger to unite around, something bigger than us, something bigger than our preferences, something bigger than our disagreements, something bigger than our opinions, the hope and the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's real unity. Paul says, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. This isn't unity for unity's sake. This is unity around a mission, around, around a purpose. And I think what happens in many churches is people lose the focus on mission, that we're called to reach a broken and hurting and lost world. And so when churches forget that, everything becomes really insulated, you know? It becomes about us. And next thing you know, we're all holding hands and singing kumbaya. And, and, and before you know it, we're fighting over what color we should paint the walls and the carpet while the world is burning and going to hell. Come on, we're not on a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. Hello, the church of Jesus Christ is a battleship. All hands on deck. We have a common enemy and it's the devil. It's Satan, this fallen world. It's not each other. The person who votes differently than you is not your enemy. The believer who thinks differently than you is not your enemy. We are all on one team, one team, team Jesus, okay? Number two, Paul gives us some correction here. Number two, he says, embrace grace. Embrace grace. Everybody say that, embrace grace. Look at this, verses 13 through 17. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Now you gotta read this the right way, okay? Paul gets a little bit like ghetto here. He's like, I don't remember if I baptized half of y'all. I baptized one or two of you. I baptized a couple dudes from this house, but beyond that, I don't even remember. So quit claiming me. I don't even remember if I baptized you. That's not what's most important. Look at verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, Christ cannot be divided. If Christ cannot be divided, how can his people be divided? Come on, we all have different roles to play, but as I said before, there's only one team, and it's team Jesus. Jesus is our captain. We're all on his team. 
And then Paul says in verse 17, he, he points to the real power. He says, the point isn't winning people to my personality. Well, why are you worried about if I baptize you? It's not about me. It's not about winning people to me. It's about winning people to Jesus. The power is in the gospel. And as you're focusing on all these other leaders, you're actually missing. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms people's life through his grace, right? Through the grace of Jesus Christ, we've been transformed. Lean into his grace. Let's keep going. Verses 20 through 25, he goes on to write this. He says, Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Okay, so what is Paul talking about here? Well, let me remind you, Paul is writing to a diverse church, a cosmopolitan church, and two of the, two of the major categories in, in the church were Greek in Jew, okay? Two systems of prevailing thinking in the ancient world. And the Greeks, how many of you know the Greeks valued wisdom and philosophy? How many of you remember studying like Aristotle and Plato, learning about the Greek philosophers and history class when you were a kid? Yeah, we, the Greeks are known for that, right? The high level thinking and philosophy and wisdom, that's what they valued. The Jews, on the other hand, they valued signs and miraculous power. And Paul reminds them, neither of those things saved you. Neither of those things saved you. Jesus did not save the world through philosophical wisdom like a Greek philosopher. Now, Jesus was an amazing teacher. His teachings were powerful, but that's not what saved people. And Paul says, Jesus did not save the world through, through signs, as the Jews expected. Now, did Jesus do signs? Certainly, he opened the eyes of the blind. He raised dead people back to life. But Jesus didn't perform the ultimate sign that all the Jews thought the Messiah would perform. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He didn't establish an earthly kingdom. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. They expected the Messiah to come and overthrow the bad guys and reestablish the kingdom of Israel on this world. That was the sign they were looking for. And guess what? He didn't do that. That's not what he did. Paul says God did not save us by sending a, a conquering Messiah or a teacher. He, he saved us by sending a Savior who died on the cross for our sins. And Paul says to the culture around them in Corinth, that sounded like foolishness. And how many of you know that sounds like foolishness to many people today? Paul said to the high-minded Greeks who were into philosophy and, and, and deep teaching and, and wisdom, the idea that, that, that the God, one of the gods would come down and take on flesh and blood and die, that sounded like foolishness to the Greeks. And to the Jews who expected a conquering Messiah to die on the cross, that, that didn't make sense to them. But come on, how many of you know that the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man? That's what Paul says. Let me just put it to you this way, okay? Because we can get so enthralled with the wisdom of this world. Let me ask you this. As you look around the world that we're living in right now, do you like the results we're getting right about now? Are you watching the same news I'm watching? Let me just tell you, if you do what everybody else does, you're going to get what everybody else gets. 
That's what Paul would say to us today. Look around. If you like the way things are going in this world, go ahead and, and, and get on board with, with that. But the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. With all of our wisdom, with all of our technology, with all of our education, and the world is so stinking broken, and it took a man, a humble man, to come to this world and go to the cross, and in the foolishness of the cross, break the power of sin, death, hell, and the grave to set us free from ourselves. Come on, how many of you know we don't just need to be set free from our sins. We need to be set free from ourselves, from our fallen thinking. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, you might say, what does this have to do with unity? What does this have to do with unity? Well, when you embrace the message of grace, the spirit of divisiveness leaves you. That's what Paul's saying. When you embrace, the greater your revelation of the grace of God, the more you grow in that and you begin to relate to God that way, you begin to see yourself that way. It shapes your identity. It shapes who you are as a Christian. The more you embrace the message of grace, the more the spirit of divisiveness leaves you because divisiveness is always about pride and self-justification. How many of you know that's true? Whatever flavor it manifests itself in, when somebody causes division in the church and leaves angry because everybody doesn't do things their, their way, there's always pride behind that. But see, the more you recognize that, that we come to the table empty-handed, come on, the, the more you, you begin to have the revelation of the goodness of the grace of God, that we did nothing to deserve what God has done for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were far away from him. He's the loving heavenly father who ran out to meet us like the prodigal son. Come on, we, we've done nothing to deserve this. Jesus did what we could never do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life on our behalf. He went to the cross for us. Come on, the more you believe that, the more that shapes your heart, the more that breaks the power of pride off of your life. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have preferences. It just means that grace takes the pride out of your preferences. We're going to be wired a certain way. We're going to have opinions. We're going to have preferences about church. We're going to vote the best way we know how to vote. We're going to have our, our opinions. It's just that grace takes the pride out of your preferences. And let me tell you another thing grace will do. The, the greater the revelation you get of God's grace for you, it'll give you the ability to have more grace for other people. Because I'm going to tell you something. We have lost, we have lost the art inside of the church of relating to people in grace. I mean, we know that doesn't happen out in the world. We expect that. that the world's a fallen place. People are fighting tooth and nail every day. But the sad thing is, is we've lost the ability in church to disagree in a spirit of grace, to just hear other people, hear where they're coming from. I mean, I say one thing that people, people disagree with for just a second, they just turn their brains off. They think I'm totally going one direction. We've, we've lost the ability. And you know, it hit me last year, I was on a retreat and three words came to me. Three words came to me, listen, learn, love. And I wrote down in my journal, we don't, lo we don't love well because we don't learn from each other well. And we don't learn from each other well because we don't stop and listen to each other. And the reality is we'd rather be right about everything. In fact, we'd rather be like, you know, spiritual know-it-alls. Anybody love a spiritual know-it-all? Anybody? Nobody likes a spiritual know-it-all. The question is, why do we drift toward being spiritual know-it-alls? We're called to excel in the gift of love. How many of you love other people who love well? I want to be around people who love well. I want a church full of people who love well. So what we have to do is we got to learn to listen to other people because you might discover that you actually didn't know everything there is to know in the world. You might discover that that person's perspective helps you understand that issue a lot better. 
Their story helps increase your, your compassion and your empathy that you, you might see things through their eyes and begin to understand that issue that you were so sure, you had so figured out, and you might end up loving better. And how many of you know that is our highest goal? Our highest goal, Paul, Paul doesn't say, there's no one in the scripture that says, I'm calling you to be a spiritual know-it-all and have it all figured out. But we are called to love well. We are called to love well. Here's the third thing. The third thing is enlarge Christ. Enlarge Christ. Paul says, if you're going to get really good at this unity thing in the church, then you've got to get a bigger vision of Jesus. Look at verse 13 again. He says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of of Paul. Paul's saying, is Christ divided? Like, why are you minimizing Jesus? Why are you minimizing the gospel? Like, Paul is not saying that when you become a Christian, your preferences go away. He's just saying they become a lot less important. They become a lot less important. And when those secondary things have become too large in, in your heart, that's a sign that your identity in Christ has become too small. Let me say that again. Somebody needs to hear that. When the secondary things your opinions and your perspectives and your politics, when those become too, too large for you, that you're finding yourself like reacting to people all the time and you're having disdain for people and you can't even be friends with someone in the church who thinks differently than you. Yes, I am stepping on your toes this morning because this is what the Holy Spirit has called me to say to you today. When those things become too big for you, pay attention. That is a blinking red light on your dashboard that your identity in Christ has become too small. And Paul says, I've got a solution for you. Get a bigger vision of Jesus. Come on, Jesus needs to get bigger in your life. His glory, his grace, his mercy, his love, what he did for you, what he's doing in this world, that needs to become bigger for you and all of those secondary things need to become smaller for you. Sure, you can have preferences. Sure, you can have opinions. Sure, you can vote the best way you know how to vote, but your vision of Jesus needs to get bigger because guess what? Jesus does not fit into the artificial boxes that this world has created and too many Christians for too long have been trying to fit him into the Democrat box, the Republican box, the conservative box, the liberal box, and Jesus says, I will not fit into your boxes. I'm bigger than those boxes. My kingdom is bigger. My message is bigger. My mercy, my grace, what I'm doing in this world is too big. And perhaps for too long, you've been trying to squeeze him into, and I'm gonna tell you, he will explode those boxes. And I'll help you today, I'll set you free. The longer you follow him and you study his word, you'll find yourself critiquing certain things on both sides. If you're fully aligned with either side, I'm telling you, you need to dig down a little bit deeper. I love it in this church when some people get offended because they think I'm too conservative. And then some other people get offended because they think I'm too progressive. Guess what? If that's happening in your life, that means you're doing things right. Oh, somebody got quiet on me this morning. That means you're doing things right because the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of this fallen world. And you will find yourself being a prophetic voice to our fallen culture because Jesus doesn't fit into those boxes. He's so much bigger, and so we gotta get a bigger vision of him. And so back to our question, let's land the plane this morning. Is unity within the church actually possible? Is unity within a divided world like we're living in right now? A world where there's so much anger and frustration and cancel culture and social media wars. Is, is it possible in a church like this with so much diversity, people from different ethnic backgrounds and political persuasions and different experiences in life, and here's the idea today. Unity is only possible when we're unified around a hope in Jesus that's so much larger than our differences. So much larger than our differences. Can I just give you a, a picture of this really quick as we end today? One of the things I love when you go to a sporting event, 
baseball game or a basketball game or a football game, right? And everybody's in the stadium and they've all got the home team gear on and they're cheering. And of course it's New York, so I really can't give a team because I'll cause division, you know? Because if I say Yankees, I'm leaving out the Mets. If Paul were writing today, he'd say, I hear that some of you are Yankees fans, some of you are Mets fans, you need to learn to love each other. So whatever your team is, you can picture that, okay? You're in the stadium, right? And, and, and you've all got the gear on and, and the colors and a really big play happens. And what happens? Everybody's high-fiving each other and hugging each other. And all these people from different backgrounds and different persuasions who otherwise wouldn't have anything in common for just a couple hours when they're inside that stadium, they're all unified by something that's bigger than them. That's a glimpse of what the church of Jesus Christ can be and should be. Honestly, is it easier if you go to a church where everybody looks like you, where most people vote like you, or most people are in your socioeconomic bracket, yeah, it's probably easier. Honestly, it probably is. In a church like ours where we're so diverse, where we have living church problems, come on, somebody, with different backgrounds, different experiences, it's going to be messy at times. You might join a life group and find out that, yeah, people think a little bit different than you. You might find yourself serving alongside some people on a team that, that you know, you normally wouldn't associate with, but you discover that something more important than that. L- l- let me tell you something that's countercultural. Let me tell you something that still matters. Let me tell you something that's, that's powerful. A group of people who otherwise wouldn't have anything else in common are united and become a family in Jesus Christ because they've discovered something that's so much bigger than anything that can divide us. Come on, that's still powerful. That still impacts people. When you walked in here, some of you, the first time you came in here, you looked around and you thought, man, like this is the most diverse place I am at any time during the week. And I love that about our church. Let me tell you, you you are one of the greatest resources in my life, in my kids' lives. Because I I, I grow from your perspective and your experiences and praying with you and and doing life with you and leading with you and ministering with you. I, I, I get better. I really believe we are better together. I really believe that. And I'm telling you, there's so, something so powerful in, in, in our witness when we unite around something that is so much bigger than us. You want to talk about counterculture. We have a chance to live that out. Come on, to lean into that. Can I challenge you to take that on personally? Can I help you? This message today, it's not for somebody else. It's not for somebody else. Sometimes we feel good. That was great preaching, Pastor. It goes for somebody else. No, no, this message is for you. It lands on you and me to do our part to do our part to promote unity. Sure, you can have your preferences. You can love certain things in the church. You can have certain opinions. You can have certain political persuasions. Every one of us, we have to take this on personally to be a loving counterculture that can change the world with the message of Jesus Christ. How many of you went in on that? Come on, if you went in on that, would you stand with me? Stand with me. We're gonna pray into this this morning. Come on, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us today. We cannot do this by ourselves. We cannot do this under human effort, but we can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the truth, the transformational truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, today, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you took people like us who were far from you, God, who did not know you. And while we were yet sinners, you gave your son for us and you brought us into a family. Come on, we're not just in this by ourselves, but God, you placed us in in a family, in a body, in a local church. You saved a place for us. You saved a seat for us at the table of your family, God. And Lord, today we ask you to to forgive us. God, forgive us for the times that we've made our preferences and our opinions and our politics and our denominational upbringing more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're praying today 
that you give us a bigger vision of Jesus. Come on, we want a bigger vision of Jesus, a bigger vision of this glorious gospel that has changed our lives, that is changing the world, that has the potential to change the broken lives of people around us. And Lord, our prayer is the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Make us one. Come on, somebody pray that with me. Jesus, make us one. Make us one. One people, one family. Your people on mission together. All hands on deck, God. We take it and we make it personal, God. We take responsibility for unity in our church. We say, may it be done in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, let's worship together. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. If you'd like to connect with us or learn more about our church, please visit us online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. We hope you can listen or join us next week.